It's August 1951 in a little town called Etna, Texas, and a crime is about to take place. A young Mexican-American farmhand named Pete Hernandez walks into Chinco Sanchez's tavern with a rifle. He points it at a man named Joe Espinosa, who'd been bullying him earlier that day, and fires a single bullet into his chest. Joe dies on the spot. Pete is arrested and put on trial for murder. The case seems cut and dry, but when the all-white jury refuses to give Pete a fair trial, a bold team of Latino lawyers decide it's time to fight back. And their fight will alter the history of civil rights, forever changing what it means to be Latino in the U.S. Welcome to the Pulsa podcast, where we tell the untold stories and unheard voices that make up our history, our culture, nuestra gente. I'm Maribel. And I'm Liz. Today's episode is a story about a team of ambitious Latino lawyers who decided it was time to change the system from the inside. Stay with us. You've heard us say this before. Being a Mexican-American in Texas during the 1950s was not easy. Mexicans were segregated in schools. They were segregated in the theaters. They were even segregated in the uh, cemeteries. So you had a section for Mexicans and a section for, for others. This is Dr. Ignacio Garcia, professor at Brigham Young University and author of White But Not Equal. When it comes to the story we're about to tell, he's literally the guy who wrote the book. At this time, people of Mexican-American descent were badly discriminated against. Many lived in desperate circumstances, had very little rights, and often faced violence or death if they spoke out. It was very particularly difficult in the rural communities of Texas to have a voice. Uh, the Texas Rangers very much regulated and controlled these communities. And this is the backdrop where the catalyst of our story, Pete Hernandez, comes into the picture. Pete Hernandez was a young farm worker. He was uh, a Mexican-American. One of these young men in these rural communities without much future. He was no one's hero. He was no one's hero. Pete had a rough hand dealt to him. He was poor, he was physically disabled, and he spent grueling days working in the fields. He was small, he was brown, and, and so people picked on him. And in a little town like Edna, Texas, there wasn't much else to do other than work or drink. Naturally, Pete and a friend end up at the local spot, Chinco Sanchez's Tavern Bar. After a few drinks, Pete starts to get loud and make a bit of a scene. And in the bar that day was a man named Joe Espinosa, another Mexican-American. But Joe was a field boss. He was the guy in charge of workers like Pete. And one of the few Mexican-Americans who was respected within the white community. So he came up to, to Pete and you know, told him to shut up. And they got into words. An argument begins. Joe and another farm worker from the community grabbed Pete and they dragged him out uh, and, and threw him out. This was not the first altercation between them. Joe bullied Pete regularly, but this time Pete was embarrassed, angry, and wanted to get back at Joe. He walked home, uh, got a 22, and walked back. And he goes into the bar and he fires and he kills him. Pete shoots Joe Espinosa in the chest, killing him on the spot. The police are called, Pete is arrested, taken to jail, and tried for murder. This is a very tight case. He murdered somebody, you have witnesses, you know, it's, there's nothing to, to litigate. He would have easily gone to jail and uh, they would have thrown away the key and nobody would have remembered him. But that's not what happened. Because Pete's mother refused to give up on him, she went to San Antonio, looked up lawyers, and found Gus Garcia. 
And this is where our story takes a significant turn. Gus Garcia was a young, successful Mexican-American lawyer from San Antonio. By this point, he had already been involved in the founding of the United Nations, worked as advisor to the American GI Forum, and helped desegregate schools in Texas. And Gus had a personality. He was charming, he was charismatic and energetic. He was the guy that everyone would turn to when he walked in the room. And Gus wasn't alone. He was working alongside two brilliant Mexican-American lawyers named Carlos Cadena and John J. Herrera. This was an all-star team. When Peter Hernandez's mom came over, she said, I don't have any money, but my son is going to be put to death if he doesn't have good representation. Gus Garcia argues that he had a, a weakness for crying mothers. So they decide to take the case. But this was not only out of a weakness for crying mothers. They had a goal in mind. The criminal justice system in Texas was incredibly unjust towards Mexican-Americans. And one major problem was that the state would never allow them to sit on a jury, which meant they could never be guaranteed a fair trial. Gus and the team of lawyers had been looking for a case that might be able to change this and thought that maybe this could be it. So they poured through the records of jury selections in Jackson County, where the crime took place, an area with a large Hispanic population, and find that not one of the 6,000 jurors selected over the past 25 years had a Hispanic last name. And when they arrive in court to defend Pete, sure enough, they walk in to find an all-white jury, not a single Latino on the bench. The jury, you know, in a very short time, decides that Pete is guilty and, and should go to jail. 99 years in prison. So the next step was to appeal the decision. They went back to court again in Edna, Texas for the appeals trial. But for a team of Hispanic lawyers, arguing a case in Edna was complicated. During the trial, they weren't even allowed to use the court bathroom. They had to go to the basement to the bathroom labeled Colored and Hombres Aquí. And this wasn't even the worst they had to face. They didn't want to stay in Edna. Um, it, it was it was dangerous because Mexicans were pretty much uh, marginalized, and some Mexican American with with a suit and, and a nice car they weren't seen very highly. So they would drive two hours back to San Antonio each night to avoid trouble. But eventually, Gus, being the rebel he was, decided to try his luck and stay in town for a while. Gus decided to stay in Edna, in a motel. Supposedly, puts a table out front in the parking lot in a chair and gets in a bottle of, of liquor, sits there and screams out, here I am, come and get me. His patience for the overt racism they faced was getting thinner every day, but this wasn't enough to make a difference yet. The appeals court comes back and says, no, you have no grounds because your people are considered white. And so a group of 12 white guys is a jury of your peers. And this was the core question they were grappling with. At the time, there was no legal room to be something other than white or black. In this Jim Crow era, segregation against black Americans was legal and was used to discriminate against them in all kinds of ways. But because there was no legal definition of Mexican-American or Hispanic at the time, and they weren't black, then they could only be white. And while this theoretically gave them the same rights as white people, in reality, they were discriminated against just like other marginalized communities. They kept being thrown back to them that said, well, you, you can't proclaim discrimination by, you know, if you have a jury of all white people because you're white, right? And so they had to hit back and say, well, maybe I am white in terms of the legal sense, 
but I'm not white in the way you treat me or the way the law treats me. Yes, you're white, but you're not equal. Mexican-Americans were living in a gray zone where they were discriminated against, but every time they spoke up about it, the white community would say, but you're white. How can you complain about having an all-white jury? That's not discrimination. So there was no legal protection for anything. Now, you might already be thinking it, but we can't help point out an obvious issue with the logic. It upholds a racist system. Here's Lisa Ramos, historian and professor at San Antonio College. It's not challenging white supremacy It's upholding it. That argument is saying the problem here is that we're whites, but Texas won't accept it. So in making this argument, the lawyers are not fighting the worst injustice. But we have to understand that this was one strategy to chip away at all the issues one piece at a time and that they were doing the best they could here. They didn't feel like it was possible to dismantle a whole system, but they could at least get fair trials and a recognition of Mexican-American identity. So, after losing the case in the appeals court, they took the next step, sending it up to the Supreme Court. Understand how risky this is. If they failed, then they would have solidified the legal discrimination for years to come. But if they succeeded, this could be the start of a new era for Mexican-Americans, a turning point. But there was a problem, money. Sending a case to the Supreme Court meant paying for months of work, legal fees, and sending the whole team to D.C. Luckily, word started to spread among the Mexican-American community, and all throughout Texas, people started giving whatever money they could to support the cause. People held fundraisers and concerts. Poor farmhands would even give their crumpled-up dollar bills. There's a couple instances where prisoners, Mexican prisoners, will send a dollar, 50 cents, you know, in support of the, the Hernandez case. And with donations like these, the team packed up and went to the nation's capital. They arrive in Washington, D.C., ready to be the first Mexican-American lawyers to set foot inside the Supreme Court. But all is not well. Gus, you know, Gus was an alcoholic. He suffered from you know, alcohol abuse and, uh, and the stress Uh, got to him. The night before they're scheduled to be in court, Gus is nowhere to be found. Until around four in the morning when he stumbles into the hotel, so drunk he can barely walk. They throw him in a cold shower, desperately trying to sober him up and save the fate of the case. Early in the morning, Gus and the rest of the lawyers walk through the giant stone columns of the Supreme Court and into the chamber where just a week earlier, Thurgood Marshall had been arguing the landmark case, Brown versus Board of Education. First, Carlos Cadena goes up to the stand. Carlos Cadena presented his brief. Uh, and Carlos Cadena was not a very, uh, you know, flashy kind of speaker, but his, but his brief was really good. But uh, when the judges started asking him certain questions about, you know, things on the ground. This is where he starts to stumble. Cadena is a brilliant legal scholar, but he's struggling to get across to the court just how bad things are in Texas. And it's clear that the justices have no idea because they've never even been addressed by Mexican-Americans or even thought about the issue of Mexican-American rights. From their seats in Washington, they have no idea what's going down in Texas. They ask dozens of questions. What is a Mexican-American? Can they speak English? Are they Mexicans? They call them greasers down there, don't they? And so Gus Garcia then takes over. Gus gets up to the podium and begins speaking. 
He starts with a history lesson and says, my people were in Texas 100 years before Sam Houston, that wet back from Tennessee. Yes, he refers to Sam Houston, the former president of the Republic of Texas, as a wetback, because when Sam arrived, Mexican people were already there. He describes the discrimination happening in Texas, the violence. He captivates the entire room with his eloquent and passionate speech. And then a small red light on the podium clicks on, meaning that his time is up. When, when you're speaking to the Supreme Court, to the justices, and the light goes on, you stop. Even if you're in the middle of a word, you stop and you sit down. It's over. And so, Gruska stops. But the Chief Justice, Earl Warren, leans forward and says, continue, Mr. Garcia. And Gus continues his speech for another 16 minutes. When the case is over, they head back to San Antonio and all over town, Spanish-language radio stations air updates to the many people who contributed their hard-earned money towards the case. Señoras y señores, quiero rendir un breve informe respecto del caso de Pete Hernández en contra del estado de Texas, el cual se ventiló recientemente ante la Suprema Corte de la Nación en Washington. And then they wait four whole months of silence until May 2nd, 1954, when the news comes in. The court had made its decision. They unanimously ruled that the 14th Amendment applied to all racial and ethnic groups facing discrimination. And in excluding Hispanics from jury duty, Texas had unreasonably singled out a class of people for different treatment and deprived them of the equal protection guaranteed by the Constitution. They had beaten Texas's racist and unjust system. They had beaten the odds and became the first Latino lawyers to argue and win a case in the Supreme Court, broadening civil rights laws to include Hispanics and all other non-whites for the first time. In the end, Pete Hernandez was able to get a new trial, this time with a jury that included several Mexican-Americans. He ended up serving 20 years in prison instead of a life sentence. Carlos Cadena and John J. Herrera went on to have successful careers. But for Gus, it didn't go so well. He struggled deeply with his alcoholism for years, until eventually he was abandoned by his friends and colleagues who could no longer stand to see him destroy himself. He died in 1964, but he's always remembered as someone who fought for the Latino community. And thanks to him and the others, a precedent was set that led to the successful challenges of employment and housing discrimination, school segregation, and voting rights barriers against Mexican-Americans, things that helped improve the lives of millions of Latinos nationwide. You can subscribe to the Pulsa Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend to give us a listen. Have questions or story ideas to send our way? Send us an email to info at projectpulso.org. This episode was produced and written by Charlie Garcia. It was edited by Lisa Larcon. Original music by Julian Blackmore. Audio engineering and mixing by Julian Blackmore and Charlie Garcia. Special thanks to LULAC historian David Contreras. Hey, Pulso fam. I want to tell you all about Atlas Lingue, a Studio 80 podcast about language, culture, and communication. Have you ever wondered what your cat is trying to tell you? Or how Disney Pixar writers craft stories that resonate across numerous languages? 
Atlas Lingway host Luis Lopez explores these topics and so much more. It's a show about the confusing, wonderful, and weird world of language, and this season, they're diving deep into the language of culture online. They're interviewing content creators from different countries who document their daily lives and cultural backgrounds on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram. New episodes air every other Monday wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also watch all the interviews on their YouTube channel at 80 Podcasts.